All right. I was going to give some recipes. Thank you to those of you who are teaching the kids. Um, we will be, as Randy prayed, in Habakkuk today, so turn with me there. We'll continue in our study together. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you, and uh, feel free to take that as a gift to you from Church on Mill. Wonderful to be a body together who gets to observe things like what we've seen today so far. Um, If you're uh, new with us, our uh, habit as a church is to just work our way through uh, books of the Bible. We do that because uh, we believe all of Scripture to be uh, God's Word, and that will mean at times we're in relatively easy passages, and at other times we're in more difficult uh, ones. This would certainly be the latter. Last week we saw that uh, after a great time of renewal, God's people in Judah had wandered away from him again. Very much analogous to those of us in the room who trust Christ and aim to live life for him. We will struggle to stay true to his path, and we will at times wander. That's what had happened in really dramatic ways in Judah. The people had filled their lives with evil again, and at the same time, they were pretending to be religious. So Habakkuk, a godly man, questioned God. And in essence, we peer into a a, a journal, if you will, of his personal interaction and question with God about why God was allowing his people to wander so far away from him. And God seemed to be doing nothing. And he, in essence, asked two questions. How long and why? How long will you put up with this, God? And why are you allowing your people to continue in sin and you seem to not even listen or care? That's the first uh, four verses. And today we'll come to God's first reply to Habakkuk. The way the book is set up is there's a statement from Habakkuk and a response from God and another statement from Habakkuk and another response uh, from God. You know on uh, the, the fences into some yards, it says, uh, Beware ravenous dog that will eat your face off in here. This passage is going to feel like that to you today. So I would just say, beware, Uh, but we're going to enter into that yard uh, together because all of the scriptures are for um, our good. Uh, Frankly, I can't think of a, a more difficult passage than this one, but I would say by way of introduction, um, if If you can't think of the last time the Bible confronted you, the Bible challenged you, the Bible offended you, uh, then you're not in it very often. Because the Bible will confront us with thoughts that are not our own. And that is a way in which we are pressed into a deeper relationship with God. But perhaps on the more softer end, um, I would also say, if What we will talk about today is challenging for you to hear, and even more challenging to believe, then I would say also that I understand, and that personally I spent several years of my life wrestling with the concepts we'll talk about today. But let's be a church where tough theology can be worked out in community. 
where we can say, uh, I see that there, but I'm not so sure I want to believe that. Help me. And where we work that out in the context of community. If you're not a Christian, today we'll give you a good grasp of the posture of a Christian and the posture of a Christian church. You see, we believe that Christianity is a historical faith, that it's a faith rooted in actual events in time in which God recorded what happened and why, and that we sit under the Scriptures, not above it, and that God speaks authoritatively today through His Word. And so while it's not always easy to hear or easy to understand, we believe that God's in charge, and so we submit to Him by submitting to His good Word. Last week, Habakkuk's complaint, his lament, his charge, if you will, against God today is God's reply. We'll read from Habakkuk 1, uh, 5 to 11, and uh, Burke Wood is going to come read that for us. Habakkuk 1, 5 to 11. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their O God. Thanks. No one's clapping for that, Burke. <laughs> Could God have stated his response any more forcefully? My gosh, is this an aggressive passage of Scripture. In essence, what God says back to Habakkuk is, My reign is sure, and my plans will be accomplished. My reign is sure. And my, and my plans will be accomplished. Now, before we walk through this response of God, let's make brief mention of two things. One, notice that God does not in any way indicate that he disagreed with Habakkuk's assessment of where the people were morally. There is not a word there of, Habakkuk, you've overstated the people's sin. God very much agreed with him. God's people were acting wickedly. But second, also notice before we get into the specifics, that God replied. That, that Habakkuk brought in a, in a posture of, I know better than you. God, why aren't you doing anything? That God responded. That's incredibly encouraging. God hears. God listens. God responds. 
Now, sometimes we may not want the response. And we'll find next week that Habakkuk certainly did not like this response. But there is a God who not only created and sustained everything, but who somehow, even when a room this size, all of us can pray at the same time. And God hears. God listens. God responds. It's incredible, isn't it? Now the passage begins with four very aggressive verbs. He says, look, see, wonder, be astonished. In other words, you better sit up and listen because I've got something to say. Now just a moment of history to frame those verbs. Uh, Assyria had been the dominant world leader literally for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But God, now ahead of time, foretold Habakkuk that they were going to fall. And that would have been unthinkable. No one would have ever believed that Assyria was going down. One commentator put it this way, Who would believe that a virtually non-existent entity could conquer the old capital of Assyria in 1614? This is B.C. or B.C.E. Nineveh in 612, Haran in 610, and rout the armies of Necho at Carchemish in 605. They became the rulers over Babylonia, Assyria, Syria, Palestine, and Egypt when 20 years before they were hardly known to exist. It's hard to get the sense of shock at what Habakkuk would have felt. But maybe if we put it in our own time, uh, it would be something like this. Remember back a few years ago when ISIS seemed to crop up out of nowhere, literally overnight. No one's heard of this group, and now they're taking over city after city after city. Their rule brought terror to the evening news. Now, it's it's easy for us to forget now that they're being slowly conquered what things felt like a few years ago. The evening news brought stories of rape, of forced marriage of little girls, beheadings, slavery, amputations. So imagine if from the first time we heard of this group, within a span of 20 years, they had taken over the United States, China, all of Europe, and the Middle East. It, it w- would have been unimaginable that that would happen, Right? That is what God told Habakkuk was going to take place. This group is going to conquer another that seems unconquerable. We would mock that idea that ISIS could do that. Now what does this have to do with Habakkuk's complaint that God had been silent and inactive in dealing with Judah's sin? Everything. Everything. You see, God foretold Habakkuk that Babylon, or Chaldea, would be God's instrument of judgment. That he would deal with the sins of the wicked among the people of God through another wicked people, 
Listen to how the passage describes Babylon. Bitter, hasty, dreaded, fearsome, swift, fierce, proud, violent, mockers, guilty. Friends, Babylon was fast and powerful and believed clearly that they ruled by self-determination. That they simply decided what they wanted and they took it in and of their own strength. These were an arrogant people. Many of us uh, like the beach. I've never quite, quite understood that. You know, you go to the beach and you're trying to get in it and it's spitting you back out. And you try again and it spits you back out. And you pay lots and lots of money for this foolishness. But the beach is covered by what? Sand. And notice the way the passage uses the word sand. It, you scoop up at the beach with no trouble at all. Hundreds of little pieces of sand and hold them in your hands. This passage says Babylon does that with people. an evocative image. That's what verse 9 tells us, that Babylon scoops up people like sand and carries them off as captives. Look at the latter half of verse 10. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. What in the world does that mean? Well, the way warfare worked in this day, there wasn't someone sitting at a computer screen behind a drone in some other country. What you would do is you would move with your army to a walled city and ensure that no one could come in or out. And then you'd wait. And the people inside would either starve to death or eventually they'd come out and fight. But Babylon, they didn't want to wait. And so they would take dirt and rocks and pile them up against the walls of a city, seemingly caring not at all about how many of their men would be shot with arrows while they're piling up dirt. They had so many soldiers, they were just dispensable. While you're inside the city, The dirt is piling up, and then they just crawl over like ants and descend on you as you're trapped inside the city. The the image is absolutely horrifying. I think it's something of what the people in Iraq felt as ISIS descended upon them seemingly from everywhere to overtake them with no one there to stop. And in all of this, God essentially says, Habakkuk, you think I don't see, I don't hear, I don't care. But I am just. And I will act justly. Well, history reveals that what Habakkuk recorded was right. Quite apart from biblical history, We know that Assyria fell to Babylon, that Babylon defeated Judah, and that they became the world's dominant superpower. 
But he didn't come here for a history lesson. But look at verse 6. Notice what it says about God. It says God raised up. That God raised up the Babylonians to judge the wicked among Judah for their sins. Friends, Habakkuk was very much mistaken. God did see the wickedness of those in Judah. And God did not sit idle. The God of heaven and earth is a just God. The God of heaven and earth looks upon the actions of all people in all places at all times. And there is no sin that goes unpunished. God providentially works out all things to his good and godly ends. That is the unescapable conclusion of this passage. Friends, what's true of Babylon and Judah is true of our own personal lives. And it's true of the nations that we all dwell in today. God's in charge. God brings about what he wants. Period. Now, this is not the most common type of sermon you'd hear today, is it? If you need to make space, this is a good way to do it. Friends, this, of course, raises huge, huge questions. Like, how could a good God somehow use, work through, tolerate an evil people to discipline a different evil people? <laughs> what is that? Now, I want to deal with that with you very straightforwardly next week. Because that's what the passage does. We could go there today, but I think we'd miss feeling what this passage is designed for us to feel. So I don't want to go too fast. Today, let's sit in this text. This text tells us that God is providential. It tells us that God not only knows what could happen, but he brings about what does happen. Let me say that again. God not only knows what could happen, he brings about what in fact does happen. So an obvious question this brings up for us is, is Habakkuk 1 an isolated text? Like, is this somehow an anomaly to the rest of the Bible? So if we start in the beginning and we read all the way through to the end, do we end up with this one weird passage in Habakkuk 1 that seems to so violently say God uses even awful things for his ends? 
Or do we find this in other passages of the Bible? Are you with me? So this is one way in which we interpret the Bible, is we look at a passage and we say, I don't know about that. Maybe I'm not reading it correctly. And then we use the Bible to interpret the Bible. And so let's do that together. So I want to take a few minutes, and there's no way you can turn to all these texts, but I just want to show you on the screens. You might write them down in order to look at them again on your own. But let's see, are there other passages that say the same thing or something similar? And if I'm going to show my cards here before we look at them, I would say this is not a weird, bizarre, isolated text. There's a whole bunch of them, way more than we could even look at together in one sitting. We see in Habakkuk one example of what's all over the Bible, and that's the teaching that God is providential, that God's in charge. So text like Psalm 33, 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Or Psalm 135, for I know that the Lord is great and that the Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all depths. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the ends of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Isaiah 46.10, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. At least those three passages in different texts indicate the same thing. God's in charge. But maybe the one that I find the most astonishing is, so the king of Babylon was a guy named Nabopolazar. Nabopolazar. Remember what we said last week? The dudes don't name the babies. Or you end up with Nabopolazar. Nabopolazar came, conquered, ruled. His son is a guy you're, you're probably more familiar with, Nebuchadnezzar. Great names run in the family. Nebuchadnezzar erects this enormous statue of himself. And he says... All people everywhere, when you hear this music, you must bow down and worship me. Great little side story is a guy named Daniel and his friends won't do it. Really tremendous story. The way in which we ought to think about God's providence is all wound up in that story. Because these guys, these young teenagers say, we're not going to do that. And our God can save us. But even if he doesn't, we're still going to worship Him. Friends, that's the way we think about the providence of God. Is not everything good will happen because my God's in charge. But God, whatever comes, I'm going to follow you. But now we're chasing rabbits. So Nebuchadnezzar goes through this experience in which he gets brutally brought low. And this king who had said, everybody worship me, now says this about God. This is Daniel chapter 4. Daniel speak, I mean, uh, Nebuchadnezzar speaking. For his dominion, meaning God's, 
is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. So what's he saying about himself and his kingdom? I ain't nothing. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Psalm 139 takes this kind of information about the whole world and says it about us personally. For you, this is God, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Now watch this. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when yet there was none of them. It's not only nations and kings. It's little peons like you and me. God's sovereign. God's in control. But maybe this is just the stuff of the Old Testament. Maybe this forceful kingship kind of language is just reserved for that grumpy God of the Old Testament, as some might think of it. Surely Jesus never said anything like this. Jesus is one of those guys you just want to go up and pinch his cheeks. Say, you're so cute. No, Jesus said the same kinds of things. Here's just one example. Matthew 10. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus claimed that God the Father is so intricately involved in the things of the world that not even a bird dies apart from the providence of God. I wish he would take care of the pigeons around my car. (laughs) Friends, the Bible's teaching... It is crystal clear. God, not you, are in control. So, what do we do with hard ideas like this? Well, we see one 
in, a, in, in one passage, and we say, surely I'm not understanding that right. I've I got to look at other passages. And so we look at other passages. But when we're still left with a truth that's perplexing, then what do we do? Well, contrary to the way many people think today, the order of godliness didn't happen in that such a way there's Jesus and then Chuck or Jesus and then Tad. Like there's a whole bunch of Christians who have appeared in between. There's over 2,000 years of church history. Other people who grappled with the same questions. So we see an individual text, we think, oh my goodness, I don't like that one. But, oh my goodness, there's a whole bunch. I don't like these. Maybe the conclusion I'm reaching can't possibly be right. Then we say, well, how have other Christians understood this? Church history is enormously important for helping us grapple with difficult passages. So, let's look to church history. How has God's providence been understood through Christian time? Are you still with me? Okay. So let me give you a little small sample in three buckets. First, the, the earliest days of the church. A guy named uh, Irenaeus wrote in around the year 180, and he said, God exercises his providence over all things and arranges the affairs of our world. Origin, of those events that happen to men, None occur by accident or chance, but in accordance with the plan so carefully considered, so stupendous, that it does not overlook even the number of hairs on a person's head. It's like he was reading the same Bible. A little later, the most famous theologian outside of an author of the Scriptures was a guy named Augustine. Augustine held to the position that we're talking about but he further refined it by adding that there is such a thing as secondary causation. And I'll talk about what that means next week. But he says that God safeguarded the holiness of God and upheld the responsibility of man. So in other words, God is holy. God is good. God's in charge of everything. And yet people make decisions and our decisions matter. And those ideas are actually not at war with each other. But they have a symbiotic relationship. That's what Augustine said. Now let's fast forward to the Middle Ages. A guy named Aquinas in the 1400s. All things that exist in whatever manner are necessarily directed by, God's, by God towards some end. Different guy, different language, different time. Same Bible. Now let's look in the Reformation area. A guy named John Calvin, a pastor in Geneva, said, God directs everything by his incomprehensible wisdom and disposes it to his own end. Without certainty about God's providence, life would be unbearable. Friends, the great Christians who've gone before us and have wrestled with these truths 
didn't swallow them like a piece of candy, but they came to savor a sweetness about them. The Beltic Confession says, we believe that nothing happens in this world without his appointment. The Hattelberg Catechism, which was used to train up little kids to understand the Bible, says, we believe that he not only created all things, but that he governs and directs them, disposing and ordaining by his sovereign will all that happens in the world. The Almighty and ever where everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven and earth and all creatures. I love this part. So that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Now, maybe this is only the weird ones from other denominations. Maybe this is just the Reformed, the Presbyterian, the Grumpies. So here's a a statement from early Baptists. This is the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. It says, God, the good creator of all things in his infinite power and wisdom, doth uphold, direct, dispose, govern all creatures, all things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, to the end for which they were created, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of his glory and his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy." So says our Baptist forefathers. Now, what about in the modern era? Surely by now, education has such a power to add up and show us that everyone before was wrong. Here's just one statement. Immortal and eternal. God perfectly and exhaustively knows the end From the beginning, sustains and sovereignly rules over all things, and providentially brings about his eternal good purposes to redeem a people for himself and restore his fallen creation to the praise of his glorious grace. Individual text, the rest of the Bible, church history has shown us that the majority of Bible believing Christians have always trusted what Habakkuk recorded. God is in charge. God does whatever he wants. Now that doesn't solve every question. I get that. But it does illustrate that Habakkuk's recording of what God said back to him Something that you'll miss completely in English is Habakkuk speaks to God as an individual and then God speaks back to Habakkuk, but they're all plurals. So in other words, those of you who cheated through school like me, God isn't talking just to Habakkuk. He's talking to all God's people. 
All the yous are plural. It's you all look. You all see. Or if you're from the South, y'all be astonished. All you ends be amazed. Now, how do we react to this? I would assume at least there's one more in the room who has a strong objection. That objection might be because of what you see in the text itself. Or it might be because of what you've seen in your own life. The objection is, God, you're, you're holy. You're good. All that you do is right. You're pure. There's no possible way that you could be sovereign over everything. I want to deal with that objection because that's the objection Habakkuk raises. So we'll look at it next week. So come back. But what are other reactions to this message of God's providence? Well, friends, particularly what we read from church history should show us that the providence of God ushers in the most wonderful comfort and trust. Yes, it's paradoxical, but it's wonderful. God is good and God is in control. Brothers and sisters, you serve a sovereign God. This is great news. This is wonderful news. The providence of God means that we can be joyful in life's most difficult trials. Nothing that ever will befall you will God say, Oh! Didn't see that one coming. Do do you see how good that is? The most challenging day you will ever face was foreordained by God before you were born for your good. If you've lived through real trial and made it out the other side and not become embittered, then you understand what Calvin meant when he said life would be unbearable if that wasn't true. Because it would mean there's some other power that can exert itself over and against God that God can't stop. And we don't want that. Friends, it also means we can be content with our lives. Because nothing happens that hasn't first fallen through the hands of God. Christians, God is working everything for our good. We can trust Him. Think of the incredible freedom from worry that this means. We worry because we believe we're in control. And that if we somehow fidget with things enough, then they'll all line up the way we want them to. And that produces worry. And we get ulcers, so we drink more coffee, we get bigger ulcers, 
We worry and worry and worry and worry and worry and worry and worry. Think of the release that this provides. You don't have to do that. In fact, that's rather stupid. God's in control. Think of what God's providence says to impatience or to anger. Think of what this says to adversity. Today when we were singing in in Christ alone, if I had a hearing aid, I would have had to turn them down. I mean, the, the sound was just tremendous. Not of stage noise, but of people singing. It was that way a few weeks ago when we sang the song, It Is Well. Remember that? It Is Well was written by a guy named Horatio Spafford in 1873. And when he wrote it, he wasn't wearing a Christian t-shirt that says, God's always good, sipping a mug that says, God works all things for good, by a little brook watching deer. Do you know the story? Horatio put his wife and four daughters, all of his kids, on a ship. And he sent them on ahead. And later he got word that the ship had crashed. And he stewed, not knowing what became of his family. This was before, of course, Twitter and Instagram, Facebook, email. And so he waited and he waited and he waited. And eventually, a telegraph came. And there was two words. That's all he got. Saved. Alone. Horatio's wife had made it out alive. All four girls drowned. Mothers. Can you imagine surviving something that all of your kids died? So Horatio, as quick as he can, he rushes to the nearest shipyard. He gets on a boat to come and meet his wife. And as he's passing over the area of the sea in which all four girls drowned, he writes these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. How in the world did he believe that? The next verse tells us. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, 
Let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. That's how. Horatio understood the controlling assurance, the centerpiece of life, is that God himself took the most evil, horrible thing that has ever happened upon himself. And that God is in control. That's how he could not plunge himself into that same sea and say, I'm not worth, life is not worth living another day. Friends, when we understand the sovereignty of God, we ultimately are brought to a point of rejoicing in the gospel. Because the gospel was brought about by the sovereign, providential hand of God. The scriptures explicitly tell us that. Acts 2, this Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You killed and crucified by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Friends, God has a definite plan. He has a plan for all of history. He has a plan for you. And it's a good plan. It's not without mystery. But we need to get off our little makeshift thrones and recognize God is on His real throne. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How unscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. God, this is a difficult passage. It is an exceedingly difficult topic. As we look out on our lives, it is hard to believe that you are in charge of all things, that you are providentially in control. It's easy for us to believe that some things happen that catch you off guard, that surely this wouldn't have happened if God is in charge, that surely this would be different if God were really providential. 
may we find that that idea actually does not honor you, nor does it help us get through trial. May we learn well from the whole of Scripture, and may we learn well from church history. God, I pray that where there are non-Christians in the room that need to come to you and submit their lives to you, for you are good and you are in control, that they would today. And where, God, there are believers that are struggling to trust you. That God, your good word would comfort them. I pray, Father, after a message like this, that we as a church family could be good brothers and sisters to each other and counsel one another well not just in the next couple of minutes, but God, throughout the week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.